Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Russia podcast. I'm Damon, and this is episode 2, Through the Mists of Time. So last time out, in the first of the setup or background episodes, we looked at Russia's geography and geopolitics, and how both had significantly impacted Russia's history. This time around... I'll be looking at the historical background, covering a vast period that will start way, way back when the first known human habitation occurred in the area we now know as Russia. And along the way, we'll meet Neanderthals, Denisovans, Proto-Indo-Europeans, Kurgans, Scythians and Slavs. And I'll end up some one and a half to two million years later just prior to the birth of the first political entity or state that was considered to be proto-Russian. Proto, that's one of those words I often use, but I wasn't really sure what it meant, so I looked it up. And it's just a really posh way of saying nearly or almost. So there you go. So why am I doing so much in a single episode? Well, for two linked reasons. The first is that so much of this circa 2 million year chunk of time is either unknown, partially known, or just hypothesised, due to the fact that there just isn't the hard and fast evidence that either exists or even semi-exists, and more on semi-exists in the next episode, for later time periods. And secondly, I want to quickly move on to the periods in Russian history where we start to define that history via its characters and its key themes, Or in other words, focus on who did what and why. So bearing all of that in mind, let's start to take a look at Russia in and through the mists of time. So, 
Depending on which source you believe, and what is considered to constitute a human, we can state with a degree of confidence that an archaic species of human being, and here we're probably talking about either Australopithecus, southern ape, or Homo habilis, handy man, was around at some point between four and two million years ago in southern and eastern Africa. Then, between approximately two to one and a half million years ago, there is evidence of the first human settlement in the territory of modern-day Russia. It's in the region of Dagestan, which borders the Caspian Sea, just above Azerbaijan. This evidence comes in the form of stone or flint tools, also known as Olduvai or Mode 1 tools, that were first discovered in the Olduvai Gorge in Tanzania. Now these tools have been roughly but noticeably shaped and were more than likely used by another one of our ancestors, Homo erectus, yes really, it means upright man, who is recognised as the first of our human forebears to have migrated from Africa and populated large areas of Eurasia, extending as far as the Iberian Peninsula to the west and Java and Indonesia to the east. Then as far as I can make out, our next glimpse of early humans in Russia comes from several incidences of fossil remains that were dated to between 110,000 and 40,000 years ago and comprised of partial skeletons and bone fragments belonging to the Neanderthal and Denisovan subspecies in both the Altai and Caucasus mountains. So the debate continues as to whether Neanderthals, who were mainly prevalent in Europe and Western Asia, and Denisovans, thought to have been prominent in Southeastern Asia and Australasia, were archaic species or subspecies of humans. And whilst the extent that they interbred both with each other and human beings is subject to ongoing debate, research shows today that a small percentage of our modern DNA can be traced back to one or the other, or both. For our first trace of Homo sapiens, wise or knowledgeable man, in Russia, we move forward to around 45,000 years ago, with the discovery of a thigh bone belonging to a male hunter-gatherer, or Ust-Ishim man, uh, named imaginatively after the place that he was found in west-central Siberia, and then from 40,000 years ago, we have the first evidence for the presence of anatomically modern humans found anywhere in Europe, at a site on the Don River near Voronezh. Sorry, I'm going to take a brief pause there. We've gone from about 2 million years ago to reach a period 40,000 years ago, so a massive amount of time. We know that early humans have existed in Russia for a long, long period but detailed knowledge is scant, and all we really have are a few fragments of evidence. So, in the next stage of our journey, let's take a look at what came next. And to be honest with you, there's a lot more theorising, uncertainty and conjecture, and everything kind of swirls around a bit. But I'm going to try to get everything in some kind of concise order, because without order, we have anarchy. So now we move out of the Neolithic, uh, which is the late or new Stone Age, which ends at a point, a uh, fairly wide gap actually, it could have ended uh, 
and it really depends where in the world you're speaking about, between 8,000 and 2,000 years ago. And now we start to see widespread migrations and the appearance and consolidation of different nomadic peoples. And for Russia, this really means four different groupings. So first off, we have the Siberian tribes living east of the Urals in northern Siberia and the northern far east of Russia. Secondly, we have the Finno-Ugric people inhabiting northern Russia and the Urals. And these people are the ancestors of today's Finns, the Sami people and the Hungarian Magyars. Thirdly, we have the Turkic or Mongol tribes located in southern and eastern Russia and indeed Mongolia and parts of China. And finally, the Indo-Europeans. And it's this last group that I'll concentrate on because essentially this is where the lingua-ethnic group from, from where the majority of today's Russians originate from. Now it's believed that having moved out of their homelands in northern India and taking various circuitous routes, they eventually came to reside in southern Russia and the Ukraine, in a place that is sort of between the Black and Caspian Seas just above them, and it's called the Pontic Caspian Steppe. And they reckon that these people arrived there at some point between 7,500 and 5,000 before the Common Era, or BCE. So these so-called Proto-Indo-Europeans, so remember Proto, nearly or almost, and apologies in advance before I go any further, but I will be saying the words Proto, Indo and European far too often in the next couple of minutes. I'm sorry about that. There's just no way around it. So these people were a hypothetical, prehistoric, ethno-linguistic group who spoke Proto-Indo-European, the ancestor of the Indo-European languages, according to theories of linguistic reconstruction, and which these Proto-Indo-Europeans then spread throughout most of the rest of Europe. Interestingly enough, though, it also appears that some Proto-Indo-Europeans, uh, and that's the last time for a while, took a more direct route to Europe, going directly across Anatolia, modern-day Turkey, and into southeastern Europe via the Aegean. But what about those who stayed on the steppe, uh, that's the Pontic-Caspian steppe, or replaced those that stayed? Well, there are a whole host of different cultures, around 11 or 12 of them, that live between 5,300 BCE and 800 BCE. And by this stage, so much more evidence is available. So let's take a look at the most important of them, see who they were and what we know. So first off, we have the Cucutani Tripilian culture. Um, they lived around 5,300 to 2,600 years ago, uh, based in Romania, Moldova and the Western Ukraine. They're also called the Tripolia culture or the Tripoli culture. And they left many beautiful examples of pottery and built some of the largest Stone Age settlements in Europe. But one of the most notable aspects of this culture was the periodic destruction of these settlements, with each single habitation site having a lifetime of roughly 60 to 80 years. Why they did this is the subject of ongoing debate. Some of the settlements were reconstructed several times on top of earlier habitational levels, preserving the shape and orientation of the older buildings. 
One particular location, the Poduri site in Romania, revealed 13 habitation levels that were constructed on top of each other over a lengthy period. And then we come to the Samara culture between 5500 and 4800 BCE. The Samara were an Enneolithic, and Enneolithic means Copper Age culture, located in the Samara Bend region of the upper Volga River. This culture is characterised by the remains of animal sacrifice which occur over most of the sites. There is no indisputable evidence of these people riding horses, but they were horse burials, and these are the earliest attested horse burials in the Old World. Typically, the head and hooves of cattle, sheep and horses are placed in shallow bowls over the human grave and smothered with ochre. Some historians have seen the beginning of the horse sacrifice in these remains, but this interpretation has not been definitely substantiated. And we move on to a culture called the Sviedni Stog, or Stog, living between about 4500 and 3500 BCE. This culture was situated along both sides of the Dnieper River, with sporadic settlements to the west and east, and appears to have, con have had contact with the Kukitani Tripilian culture to its west. And here we see some of the oldest evidence of horse domestication, but not necessarily for riding perhaps just for use as pack animals. And then we come on to the Yamna stroke Kurgan culture, living between about 3500 and 2300 BCE in the eastern Ukraine and southern Russia. Now the Kurgan were the first European culture to use bronze, which is an alloy of copper and mainly tin, and the wheel and are also characterised by their elaborate graves, also called, rather helpfully, if not slightly unimaginatively, Kurgans, in which a burial mound was built over the gravesite and the bodies were covered with ochre. Again, animals like cattle, pigs, sheep, goats and horses were sacrificed, indicating that the Kurgan lived mainly by herding. And there is a theory, the Kurgan hypothesis, which proposes that the Kurgans were the original Indo-Europeans, and a second theory that they were also the ancestors of the Slavic peoples. But more of that a bit later. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Then we have a number of various groups or cultures the Fatianovo, Balanovo, the Catacomb, 
the Poltavka, the Abhishevo, the Srubna, and the Novochikask, that over the next thousand years or so inch us further along our journey, taking in the Middle and Late Bronze Ages and the Iron Age. And then we come on to the oldest pre-Russian culture that we know anything about from this era, aside from the artifacts that they left. And these were the Cimmerians or Chimerians, or from the Greek, the Chimerioi. So conventional theory has them living on the north shore of the Black Sea as early as 1200 to 1000 BCE. And they are mentioned in Assyrian written records that date back to the 8th century BCE. Like the tribes before and indeed after them, the Chimerians were nomads, always on the move with herds of horses and cattle, and they measured their wealth and status by the number of horses that any individual owned. Okay, lots of different names and dates there, so we're going to have a, another second pause. We've explored a number of different cultures all living in, in and around the Pontic Steppe from around 5000 BCE through the Copper and Bronze Ages to the 8th century BCE. They're all still nomadic, but becoming more settled, even though they've now got horses and the wheel, and they utilise increasingly elaborate burial practices. So what happens next? The Scythians happen next. So the Scythians, uh, and we get the name from the Greek Scythoi, were another ancient nomadic Eurasian people who dominated the Pontic steppe from around the 7th century BCE up until the 3rd century BCE. The Scythians are generally, or Scythians, sorry, are generally believed to have been of Iranian origin. They spoke a language of the Scythian branch of the Iranian languages and practiced a variant of ancient Iranian religion. So I would have said they were Iranian. They were among the earliest peoples to master mounted warfare, and they are effectively the prototype for all of the mounted nomadic steppe raiders that you've probably got in your mind, like the Mongols and the Huns. They were aggressive, quick and tough, and they'd be on you before you knew it, and you wouldn't stand a chance. They replaced the Chimerians as the dominant power on the Pontic steppe in the 8th century BC, and over the next 200 years came to dominate the entire Eurasian steppe from the Carpathian Mountains in the west to the borderlands of China in the east, creating what has been called the first Central Asian nomadic empire, centred on what is modern-day Ukraine and southern Russia. Then around 650 to 630 BC, they briefly conquered the Medes of the western Iranian plateau, stretching their power all the way to the borders of Egypt. But after losing control over Medea, the Scythians continued intervening in Middle Eastern affairs, playing a leading role in the destruction of the Assyrian Empire in the sack of Nineveh in 612 BCE. We know more about the Scythians than any of the other cultures that preceded them because of the ancient Greeks who traded with them and wrote about them, notably Herodotus in his histories, and whilst the Greeks lumped them into the barbarian bracket, they were both wary of the Scythians and more than quietly impressed. The Scythians subsequently engaged in frequent conflicts with the Persian Achaemenid Empire, but suffered a major defeat against Macedonia in the 4th century BCE and were subsequently gradually conquered 
by a cousin people, if you like, called the Sarmatians. Um, like I say, they were related Iranian people living to their east. So who were the Sarmatians? Well, their name comes to us again from the Greek, the Sarmatii or Samatai. They were a large Iranian confederation that existed in classical antiquity, flourishing from about the 5th century BCE to the 4th century AD. Originating in the central parts of the Eurasian steppe, the Sarmatians were part of the wider Scythian cultures and they started migrating westward around the 4th and 3rd centuries BCE, coming to dominate their closely related Scythian cousins by 200 BCE. At their greatest reported extent, around the 1st century AD, they ranged from the Vistula River to the mouth of the Danube and eastward to the Volga, bordering the shores of the Black and Caspian Seas as well as the Caucasus Mountains to the south. Their territory, which was known as Sarmatia to the Greco-Roman ethnographers, corresponded to the western part of Greater Scythia. It included today's central Ukraine, southeastern Ukraine, southern Russia, Russian Volga and the south Ural regions, and also to a smaller extent the northeastern Balkans around Moldova. And later on in the 1st century AD, the Sarmatians began encroaching upon the Roman Empire in alliance with Germanic tribes. But in the 3rd century AD, their dominance over of the Pontic steppe was broken by the Germanic Goths, and with the Hunnic invasions of the 4th century, many Sarmatians joined with the Goths and other Germanic tribes. So in the first millennium of the Common Era, or AD, much of Europe was just a swirl of movement. Internal crisis and barbarian invasions challenged the Western Roman Empire, and between 300 and 500 AD, Germanic tribes such as the Goths, Vandals, Angles and Saxons gained control of most of the Romans' territory. Then, between 500 and 700 AD, another tribe, other tribes, sorry, including the Slavs, pushed these Germanic people westwards. Now, historical records suggest that a major Slavic expansion across Europe took place in approximately 500 to 1000 AD. As mentioned, in Central Western Europe, it affected the group speaking the Germanic languages, but in Eastern Europe, it affected areas previously occupied by the Baltic, Finno-Ugric and Turkic-speaking populations and in the Balkans, populations of diverse linguistic affiliation. But, where did the Slavs originate from? We've got the theory that they originated from the Kurgans, but, well, how long have you really got? Because this is a really difficult area. The issue of Slavic origin is beset by nationalistic views. We have Polish historians pushing for a Polish homeland and linking the Slavs to the Vistula or Baltic Veneti, who, rather confusingly, were one of three different peoples that the Romans called the Veneti, and who inhabited the region of Central Europe east of the Vistula River and the coastal areas around the Bay of Gdansk. We've got the Danubian theory, which proposes that the homeland of the Slavs was located somewhere along the Danube, probably in Central Europe. And then finally we come to the Dnieper hypothesis, favoured by Russian scholars, which centres the original Slavic homeland along the Dnieper River Valley in Western Russia and Ukraine, and which puts the early Slavs in reasonably close contact 
with the Baltic, Germanic and Iranian cultures. But whilst this last theory is geographically convenient, no one really knows how the Slavs moved from the Dnieper and into the other parts of Europe that they now inhabit. And, and in fact, there is a view that they didn't physically move at all and that their language did the work for them. Who knows? What we do know is that by the 7th and 8th centuries of the Common Era, or AD, they were in place. OK, you'll probably be relieved that we're close to the end, all these dates and different peoples, but we have one more cultural ingredient to add to our historical smorgasbord, big clue there, the Vikings. Because suddenly, out of 8th and 9th century Scandinavia, comes one of the most important, dramatic and well-documented migrations of early medieval history. Just before we start on the Vikings, I'm not going to get bogged down at all into the origin of the word Viking. There's so many theories, but my favourite being that Viking was actually a verb, something that you actually did that encompassed a lot of sailing, rowing, raiding and pillaging. Anyway, back on topic. Vikings from the south and west of Scandinavia, say modern-day Denmark and Norway, raided, pillaged and finally colonised large areas of Western Europe including modern-day France, Britain and Ireland. And then they set out across the Atlantic, taking in Iceland, Greenland and Vinland, the settlement on present-day Newfoundland. But what about the Eastern or Swedish Vikings, or Varangians, as they were also called, mainly by the Greeks and Byzantines? Well, with the Baltic Sea to their south and east, they rather sensibly went in those directions, and initially set up trading posts on the Gulf of Finland and the coast of Latvia. And then following the short Nieva River inland from the coast, the Varangians reached Lake Ladoga and founded their first, and this is inverted commas, Russian settlement called Aldig Uborg in Norse and Staraya Ladoga in Russian in around the 750s. And from there, they began exploring the rivers that came from further to the east and started trading with the Slavs for furs, honey, wax, amber and iron. I'm going to stop there because one of the things that, that struck me reading about the differences or noticing differences with the words that are used for the Western Vikings who raided, pillaged and these Eastern Vikings who traded. I mean, was there that much of a difference? Or did they all... I don't know. Uh, it's just a noticeable difference. These rivers, though, seem never-ending, and the Varangians, who were keen to explore further, mainly because of the stories of the great riches that lay somewhere to the south, gradually pushed their way along the numerous waterways that eventually joined either the Dnieper or the Don rivers, and that ultimately reached the Black Sea. And from there, it was a few more days sailing across to one of the most amazing cities in the known world, Constantinople, or Miklagard, the great city, as it was known to the Varangians, and where they first arrived in the early 830s. Now, these first generations of Varangians, or the Rus, as the Slavs called them, and Rus is generally considered to be a borrowing from the Finnish name for Sweden, Ruotsi, which either refers to rowing and ships or is an older name for the Swedish coastal region of Roslagen. So these Rus were not numerous enough to pose too much of a threat to the Slavs whose lands they passed through. And anyway, having seen Constantinople, their minds were now on more important things. However, 
the second and subsequent generations of Rus travellers built a string of fortified towns along the northern end of their trading routes in the mid-800s, and the most important of these were situated in a place that the Rus called Holmgard. Okay, I'm going to leave things there for this week. We've traced the prehistory and antiquity of Russia from the Old Stone Age up to the early medieval period. And next time, in the first episode proper, the mists will lift and we'll be looking at the very beginnings of the first Rus-Slav political entity. Oh, and I'll also be casting my eye on what was going on in the various other parts of Europe, just to provide a bit of useful context. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the episode. I know there was a lot to take in, but uh, until next time, keep your head down, look after yourself, and I'll see you soon. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.